Welcome to the Johnny Fallon Podcast Referendum Series, where we are continuing our look at Ireland's referendums through the decades and how they have shaped and influenced Irish society, Irish politics, and of course, how we have evolved as a society and a country on major issues, both social and economic this week we're taking a look at three referendums from the mid to late 90s uh, that occurred. These of course are the uh, bail referendum, a referendum on cabinet confidentiality and the Amsterdam Treaty. Uh, All to come so sit back, relax, enjoy and we'll take a little journey back in time to figure out just why these issues seemed so important at the time and indeed maybe why they have been a little bit forgotten all these years on. So we have a three for one offer, if you like, this week in terms of the referendums we're covering because some of these referendums have been somewhat forgotten over the years as to why we had them or what was their import or if you weren't around when these referendums occurred then you might be forgiven for not thinking they were all that important as you look back over your study of politics or history in recent times but of course all referendums are important for different reasons and different things that they signified and they all tell something of a story. Now at the outset, I'm going to say we could have had a four for one uh, on this week um, in that we have two referendums uh, that were, were held separately but uh, were, were important referendums for the, the issues that were there but they didn't really reach that public consciousness, that, that important thing where you know we all look back in it and talk about that debate and of course they were one on cabinet confidentiality we'll explain, one on bail rights which we'll explain. And then, of course, the Amsterdam Treaty, which was quite an important European treaty that we're going to look at. But the Amsterdam Treaty was voted on the same day as the Good Friday Agreement. So we could have bunched in the Good Friday Agreement there, but I've decided to treat, deal with that one separately. Simply because I think it deserves it has a very different dynamic to that. Um, and it had implications and a background that was very different to other referendums. And I think it deserves some some space on its own. Um, Given where we're at in Ireland and given that the Irish-UK relationship and all of those kind of things, I think it's different that we we look at that one a little bit differently and, and separately in its own regard. So that leaves us with the three we've got before us today. Um, now, one of the things we've covered uh, throughout these this referendum series is, of course, the fact that some referendums, usually ones about huge social issues that really get people going, be it abortion, divorce, and indeed some of the big European um, referendums, have tended to stick in the imagination and, and, and stick in the memory, if you like, of, of people as they, they look back on campaigns and talk about big changes. But because we have this written constitution, there are also referendums that just happen that if we didn't have a written constitution, they'd be simply dealt with by the Oireachtas and the Dole. And sometimes these can be complex matters. They can be um, what people see as, as, as very specific or technical issues. And we talked about how some of them occurred during the likes of the 70s in particular. Um, but, of course, they, we have 
numerous ones that have happened throughout history and and perhaps this these two referendums that we're going to look at uh, in terms of cabinet confidentiality and indeed the idea of uh, the bail referendum could equally be uh, argued to have merit in that. The other thing we're going to take a look at in this, uh, of course, as part of the uh, Amsterdam Treaty will be the fact that you you will have heard in my last interview uh, of part of the referendum series uh, that, that we carried out, uh, in that you will have seen we went through all of what some of the legal issues were uh, around um, the, the referendums. And Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh explained to us why, you know, it's important and what those judgments that happened in or around now, uh, in the years leading up before this, what they meant, in particular, the establishment of what would be the Referendum Commission, which takes a while to find its feet and find the format of it. We're going to look at its earliest outing, say, in the uh, Amsterdam Treaty and what that meant uh, as, as they struggled to kind of find how they were going to implement this equal um information in in referendums so it's going to be um an interesting one this because some of the issues we want to touch on uh may seem technical and some of them might seem quite substantive uh but all of them did play a, a very big part now the first one we're going to look at in terms of referendums here and i suppose the simplest one if you like um, might be the idea of the uh, bail referendum uh, in Ireland and what that uh, what that meant for it, and of course the uh, referendums then on cabinet confidentiality as well. But the bail referendum we'll do first. That's the sixteenth amendment to the Constitution of Ireland, uh, and that brought with it some interesting questions for uh, rights, uh, rights of prisoners, rights of people uh, accused of crimes. And that's perhaps the best place to start. Now, a little bit of overview. So for uh, this bail referendum, we're going back to 1996. Um, so or, or you've had the, the uh, divorce uh, re- referendum in 1995. And as we explained in, in, in that podcast, that was a big step. It was an, an advancement for society. It was also one of the things that I suppose... This new government under um, Democratic Left, Labour and Fine Gael and John Bruton as Taoiseach were feeling quite confident about and, and feeling that they were on quite a reform agenda. But one of the big issues around this time in Ireland, one of the things that was really vex- vexatious for people was crime. And again, I remember this kind of period and I remember... Um, you know, in opposition, Fianna Fáil were preparing for an election. So, we, you know, they knew uh, elections were coming up in, in 97. And this was, you know, a, a rundown to it. And one of the big issues Fianna Fáil had identified in their uh, literature around this time was that the government could be weak on crime and, and that that was something people were scared of. Uh, and they were going very tough after this whole area of crime. Their, this policy zero, zero uh, tolerance would be there in, in the upcoming election they would be talking about zero tolerance for any kind of crimes new policy from america all these kind of things that you hear in elections 
And the government were, of course, concerned about this. Now, this was a government that had been very definite about uh, some of the things it had had to deal with. You're talking about time when, you know, just to give you some overview, it's not all connected, although it is to, to one degree at a looser level, but you had uh, Veronica Guerin, uh, the, the killing of Veronica Guerin. You had the setting up of CAB, uh, the Criminal Assets Bureau. You had all of those things. You can get a sense of why people just felt crime was something that was important and that was important to them you know the idea that people weren't feeling as safe in their homes as they once did and what's interesting about that and I always find these things interesting because these are narratives that take hold and they take hold in a society at any given time and once an hour narrative just needs something that says it just needs to be kept fueled and it only needs anecdotes and uh, to, to keep it going for a while. And then if you can produce any slight evidence to back this up at all, it then really gathers steam. And at the time, crime becomes this thing that it's getting out of hand. It's getting out of control and people aren't safe and they really want something done on crime. So anything in this space becomes really, really important. Now, the government... Uh, discovered that they are going to have to have a referendum to change bail laws. And at its heart here was a situation that had come from a Supreme Court judgment in 1966, um, which was the people or the Attorney General versus O'Callaghan. And the Supreme Court had ruled in that that the Constitution, under Article 40.4, guaranteed the personal liberty uh, meant that an individual charged with a crime can only be refused bail if you think they're going to interfere with a witness or tamper with the evidence. So we have that situation on the books for a crime. So if you are accused of a crime, um, if you are, are, are brought before the court, the only reason the court is going to refuse you bail is because they think you're going to go out and either influence a witness or, you know, do something uh, with with regard to the evidence of this. Like go hide, a, hide evidence or shred evidence or whatever it is you'd be doing. Now, that creates a problem in this crime um, worried society because over the years there has been... Uh, discussion on this and and there's been quite a lot of of discussion about what should happen. The Law Reform Commission uh, have been appointed to look at at various things including this and in 95 they publish a report which considers some of the legal approaches uh, to this um, and what should happen and one of the things they say is that the the current situation does not allow the court to take into account that this person might reoffend, and this becomes the issue. So, again, what you have here is, uh, you can get simple enough idea. You 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 can be refused bail if you're going to interfere with the evidence or the the work of the courts or or the investigation. But at the moment, you can't be refused bail just because a judge or someone thinks, you know, you might go out and re-offend. And to the general public and to a lot of people out there, you know, there's a worry that what's happening here is that, say there are, let's let's take robberies, for instance, and the the view is, well, you know, there are people going in, they're breaking into our house, they, they, they steal, you know, a load of stuff, they're taken off to court, 
um, and then they're given bail and should they get out on bail and they break into my neighbour's house and they now if they break into your neighbour's house they're not interfering with the evidence they're not interfering with their own trial but they're on bail and they're committing a new crime and there becomes this idea this this thing becomes this revolving door you know which is used in many different aspects of us in our prison service all these things but there's this revolving door on bail as well that if you uh, can't refuse bail because you're afraid they might recommit the crime, they might recommit or, or commit a new crime, then this is what's happening. We're just leaving them out on the streets and, you know, sure, they're committing all kinds of crimes in the meantime. And that gets very serious when you get down to other crimes. I'm using robberies as an example there, but, you know, there's car crime, there is murder, there is rape, there are all these very deep emotive crimes that really get to the heart of society and what society's worried about. And of course, what people feel at this point is, you know, we have to shut this. We have to shut this revolving door. You know, if you think that person is going to reoffend and they're going to go straight back out of there and commit another crime, then they shouldn't get bail. We need them off the streets. And that becomes the idea that it is a fairly simple referendum in that regard in order to do it. Now, as I say, Fianna Fáil are in the opposition and they're beginning to start their whole zero tolerance to crime kind of th- approach that they're going to use for the, the next election. So you're going to get cross-party support here because the main opposition party is trying to look really, really tough on crime. And the government has already stated its its aims of being tough on crime and tough on gangland crime and all these kind of things. Nora Owen is the minister and she introduces this and it is supported by uh, Fianna Fáil and the Progressive Democrats as two opposition parties and, of course, her colleagues in government making it seem like it should be a pretty open and shut case for uh, the government. And of course, that maybe is why this referendum doesn't live large in, in our memories, because it was so widely supported. And it was on something that the general public felt, yes, this is an issue. There is a real fear that these people are, are recommitting crimes Uh, all the time on bail and this is one simple way to stop it so let's go and ensure we stop it and that becomes I suppose the mantra for the parties it becomes this is a bit of housekeeping and and one of the things the government has to do here is to kind of keep a lid on this and as with the opposition it's not a big deal you know it's closing a loophole and 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 it's important that they get that across in the referendum this is just a loophole we're closing off here because it's it's a difficult situation but you're safe in voting for this. So all in all, you have all the ingredients pretty much of that open and shut uh, debate as far as the public are concerned. Um, you know, look, this wouldn't be a problem for you anyway, unless you've been someone who's committed a crime, then you won't be in front of the court. So those people don't worry and other people don't worry because, you know, look, uh, this is just something you, if you're if you're not going to reoffend and it's your first time, well, you know, the judge's not going to be suspicious of you, is he? And that's the kind of view that, that people generally have um, as they approach the referendum. Now, it is important, I think, to look at the fact that there were some people opposed to it and and in understanding the referendum and what that did and what it did change it is perhaps interesting to look at some of the arguments against uh, and some of the literature that came out in that referendum uh, just to read from from uh, some of it to to give you a sense of why people 
uh, opposed it. And and this is taken uh, from, my, again, my, my good friend um, Alan Kinsler at Election Lit on Twitter, who has this great collection of election literature, uh, uh, passed this to me. Uh, but it gives us a sense of why people were, you know, a, some people were against the referendum. And they formed a campaign called the Right to Bail campaign. Uh, and they said, and I'll just uh, read out some of this uh, quote. The government's proposed bail referendum is ill thought out and unnecessary. It contains serious dangers for our justice system and ignores the key issues in reducing crime. The government wants to change the constitution so that courts can refuse bail to people whom they think might commit an offence while on bail. Why you should vote no. A person is considered innocent until proven guilty. This amendment will allow for people to be put into prison for crimes they have not committed or even thought about committing. Over 60% of people now refuse bail in Ireland are acquitted at trial or given non-custodial sentences such as fines. Prisons are already overcrowded. Convicted criminals would have to be let out to make room for people awaiting trial. Promised new prisons will not even hold the prisoners we currently have, never mind hundreds of new remand prisoners, and will not be built for years. Studies in the UK and the US show there is no accurate way of predicting who will offend while on bail. Uh, innocent people will be sent to jail. End quote. Uh, just for a moment there, just end, end quote, just to, to look at some of the arguments that they're 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 making there. Uh, because I think it's it's particularly important. You can notice the emphasis they're putting on. Number one, what they fear is that you are going to be put in prison. You're not going to be given bail and you won't be put in prison because the judge thinks you might commit a crime. Thinks that you might commit, even though you might be innocent of the crime that you're about to be tried for. Maybe you'll be found innocent of that. Maybe you didn't do it, but you still won't get bail because the judge might say, yeah, but I think you might reoffend," And that there's no way of predicting who reoffends and who doesn't in no accurate way. So you can see here one of these interesting things that happens with referendums. At one level, to the public, this is pretty simple. And to the government, it's pretty simple. Look, you know, you can be refused bail if we think you're going to tamper with the evidence. We're just expanding it that if we think you're going to harm anybody else out there, you can also be refused bail. Fairly simple and something the public are kind of so fearful of crime that they're kind of okay with. But on another side, when you get down to a really theoretical, technical level, an argument that, you know, th there is a problem here. There's going to be a problem for uh, people being put in prison who don't have to be, who could have been out on bail and wouldn't pose any threat of reoffending, but they're being made go out there. And of course, certain fear tactic here, the prisons are already overcrowded. And they're not building new prisons. And, and of course, that was an issue at the time. There was overcrowding in prisons and there were no new prisons coming online. And there was funding issues and, and delays in building works. And all these kind of things were also out there. But a sense of we're going to have to let out the convicted criminals to let in all these remand uh, prisoners uh, who, who, you know, maybe pose less of a threat. So there's a little bit of the fear and scare tactics going on. Uh, just to continue on with some of the, the rest of their arguments here. Uh, quote. 
The government says this proposal will only deal with people arrested for a serious crime, but the definition used can include stealing a Mars bar or breaking a window. Should we imprison children or petty offenders before their trial? A deterrent to offending while on bail already exists. A judge can give consecutive sentences for such offences. When this was applied in the past, it was extremely effective. It should be applied again. Speedier trials will put real criminals in prison before they get a chance to offend again. The suicide rate among people on remand in England is four times higher than for other prisoners. There is no reason to believe that things will be any better in Ireland. This referendum ignores the real root of the problem. Up to 80% of crime is drug-related. Measures to combat crime must include a major education, prevention and treatment programme to reduce demand for drugs. End quote. <clears throat> Now, again, there, I think you just get the sense of exactly why this referendum matters to these people and, and why it's, it's, it's important for them. But you get a little bit of the fear tactic coming in there. The government is saying, look, this will only be for serious crimes and it's only going to be used, you know, very, very particularly. But there's always this feeling that once it's there... It can be used any way somebody likes. And you can see that there. Oh, it's going to be for a Mars bar. And this was the thing. And, and you will find this when uh, this crime debate moves on uh, into the election. And crime is this big issue. And remember, I talked about that zero tolerance uh, approach in the, the 97 election from the opposition party, Fianna Fáil, we're going to come up with. And one of the things that people are fearful of there is, oh, zero tolerance means you go straight to prison for stealing a Mars bar. And, and the Mars bar thing becomes an actual thing in debate and discussion. We're all terrified of what happens to the people who steal the Mars bars. Uh, they're only kids. The only way I don't want them in prison for stealing the Mars bar. It's the perfect narrative example for, you know, a draconian state. But right now, this kind of thing is not holding a huge amount of water with the Irish public because as far as they're seeing... You know, yes, you want people, but they're much more worried about a bigger, stronger narrative, which is that people are committing a lot of crimes and there are figures showing there are figures for people committing crimes while out on bail. And all people need in that sense is to turn on their news, hear a news story that's pretty bad, pretty horrific. And it says that this person committed the crime while on bail. And that's enough for people to go, listen, yeah. They shouldn't have been allowed out to do that. And I'm I'm happy to go with the referendum as a result. So it's a, a real uphill battle if you wanted to go uh, against this referendum. Um, but it is important that it was it was one that did change quite a bit uh, in terms of uh, how we approach some issues of law in Ireland. And I think one of the things that's interesting about it was that once the referendum is held, it goes out. It doesn't fire the imagination of the public. The public are fairly, you know, open about it and people are fairly definite that want. Is it the kind of thing, though, and here's the problem with referendums, is it the kind of thing that makes you get up and say, oh, I've got to get out of work because I've got to go vote in this really vital referendum? It's not that kind of issue. So you have an issue that people in the public are generally worried about, yes. But... This particular bail idea and argument, even if we support it, it's not something we're going out of our way to want to do. It's not something that's motivating huge amounts of people. <clears throat> so you get a situation that when the referendum is held, you don't get all the parties are in agreement in, 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 in the, the, the main parties in, in the dollar in agreement on this. 
there's a narrative that it fits into that everyone feels yes it's a bit of housekeeping let's just get it done get it changed and then you have a small group trying to say listen there's some really big things we think are going to happen very negatively out of this but that's going to struggle to get through all of that is a recipe for people feeling this referendum is done and dusted it's over we're not going into this referendum to have a a debate or discussion or for it to be even close polls even showed that you know the public generally support this measure it's why the government are bringing it forward and of course all that means that when the referendum happens you get one of the worst uh, turnouts in electoral history in ireland only 29.23 percent of the irish public turnout to vote And this does point to one of the weaknesses in our referendum system. If it doesn't catch fire, if it doesn't fire the imagination of voters, if it doesn't, you get very few people voting. And that does undermine results. But yet the result stands. And one of the reasons the result stands is it is conclusive. The yes vote is almost 75% compared to 25% no. So of those who voted... It's an overwhelming uh, vote in favour of you get. But, I mean, look in sheer numbers. 579,740 people voted yes. 194,968 vote no. It's a complete... Um, and very definite decision on the part of those who voted. But what's more worrying, and I suppose needs to be pointed out more in this referendum, is just how difficult it was to get people engaged in the debate and get people feeling that they should go out and vote. And it does undermine results when you get in. Now, the public are quite happy to let this go, and in the aftermath of it, we don't get any outcry, we don't get any scenes of people being denied bail for having stolen a Mars bar as a kid and, and those. They're not what we see and we don't see the problems of, of you know, criminals being let out onto the streets to allow people be put in on remand and all that. We, we don't see that sense. So you get a sense from the public that things just move on quite nicely. But of course, that does feed into that narrative that you can be a bit lazy with referendums. You don't always have to vote. And sometimes they're a bit of a pain and they contain issues that are too complex and therefore maybe not the kind of issues that we all care about so deeply. But enough. And and I suppose, look, it points to a very important lesson in it. Those who vote get the say. And the people who showed up were overwhelmingly in favour of this and therefore did actually uh, get the result and the result stands. Now, whether or not uh, if you'd had a higher turnout, it would have changed is very much open to debate because it is likely and polls would show that the Irish people at this point were very much definite that this needed to happen. And given what's happened since, I think probably would still stand very much by that decision uh, as as a fairly reasonable technical decision uh, based on fears that someone might reoffend. then you have to be able to uh, ensure that they're not let out onto the streets to do that so perhaps from there a reasonable argument but again a forgotten perhaps um debate now not forgotten to those who were involved in this because i know nora owen herself was very proud of this proud of getting it through and felt it made a big uh, impact on their battle against crime and and what the difference it made and was a very definite uh step 
and tool in the armory to do that. So for many of those involved, this was important, but maybe to the wider public, it begins to fade as quickly as it's happened. So maybe with a little bit of that in mind, another referendum was on the books and had to happen, which came from Cabinet Confidentiality. Now, cabinet confidentiality, this is something that's come from the Beef Tribunal way back in 92. Fans of the election series podcast will have gone through uh, some of this, uh, so you'll be familiar with the background to that. But um, this is something that was agreed by the Fianna Fáil Progressive Democrat uh, government after the, the, the Beef Tribunal in there, it became something that was, was going to be essential for, for um, you know, having to put on the uh, agenda for the public. It was carried on by the uh, Fine Gael Labour and Democratic Left uh, government because this was a fairly big issue at the time and it becomes something that all of the parties, therefore, again, uh, wanted the 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 uh, I suppose in this what had happened uh, we'll give you a little bit of background into to what happened in a moment but in in this uh, election I, this occurs kind of between two governments so you have uh well uh, three governments really and let me uh, outline you had a Fianna Fáil progressive democrat uh coalition which collapsed after the beef tribunal and the beef tribunal being one of those big moments in it uh again can refer back to the election series on that and the the uh, election of 1992 as to how that came about but in that one of the things that's that's really been a sticking block in us has been problems around cabinet confidentiality which have come up at this beef tribunal which eventually brings down that government and that becomes an issue Fiona Fall and Labour, uh, former government after that. And of course, that's always in the background of that government. And it's something that's been looked at and talked about because there's this fear that, you know, why did it happen? What is the need for it? How, how you know, it does cabinet confidentiality hide things? And therefore, when you get the Fine Gael Labour Democratic left uh, government uh, by John Bruton, um, it was something that they suggested that we need a referendum on this then they say look let's solve this because it's hanging around in the background and nobody's quite sure where we were left after that and maybe we need a referendum to say that cabinet confidentiality doesn't always stand the Fianna Fáil um, progressive democrat coalition take over after the 97 election so they come to power they defeat again you can follow that in the election series too but they come to power um in this time and then they agree yes this does need to be looked at and we're going to carry forward and we're going to have the referendum now uh, perhaps with that in mind of how the low turnout in the bail referendum they decide there's a presidential election coming up so let's hold this referendum on the same day as the presidential election and therefore we might boost the turnout now, I'm never a fan of having two and three votes on one day because I do think it confuses people and I do think. But on the other hand, the very simple argument is that if you have a very technical issue in a referendum like the bail one was, you get this ridiculously low turnout. If you hold it on the same day and there was a fear that this cabinet confidentiality one, it's not something that affects everybody or that everybody deeply cares about. It's a technical issue. If you hold it on its own, 
you're only going to get a handful of people voting. So better hold it the same day as the presidential election because lots of people will come out and vote in the presidential election and we'll get a decent turnout and a decent vote. So there is merit in it for those kind of, of debates and arguments. Whether or not people understand it any better is a whole other question because people, of course, are focused on the election uh, that they're really interested in and maybe not so much the referendum. That said, uh, it improves the turnout. Therefore, it's always been a, a favoured tool. So what was this cabinet confidentiality thing? Well, during the 1992, and again, don't want to go over old ground that we've covered before on beef tribunals uh, in, in the election series, but... Um, during that beef tribunal in 1992, uh, a situation arises where various cabinet ministers are giving evidence. Ray Burke being one of them, um, you know, Desmond Malley is giving evidence, Albert Reynolds is giving evidence, and there's all kind of rows about who's giving what evidence. Um, and Ray Burke in particular was, you know, one of going to be one of the big witnesses. Uh, that he, what he was going to say now. As they're going on, it becomes clear that some of the questions are going to cover decisions taken by cabinet. Now, there is a rule in Ireland, as there is in, in pretty much every other country, that for a cabinet to really operate, you do need a certain amount of secrecy, as in people need to be able to debate, discuss things, raise things without it all being reported at the time. So as they can have that open and frank discussions, like we all know, sometimes, you know, you don't want to have an argument in front of the whole office. So you get two people and you say, well, let's talk about this and then we'll, we'll, we'll you know, present a united front. You don't want everybody seeing all of the, the ups and downs. So cabinet confidentiality is a rule. And of course, there are matters of state and matters of national security and all those kind of things that get talked about and discussed at cabinet that need to remain a uh, secret for, for various reasons. So you have a situation where um, cabinet confidentiality exists and when you join cabinet, you sign up to cabinet confidentiality, which means you do not breach cabinet confidentiality. The tribunals begin to push this to a limit where they begin to ask questions and it becomes well what was said who was said it what was said and of course if you're investigating something you know where there's potential corruption or there's uh you know accusations of wrongdoing well then you need to know so the tribunals are part of this but in the midst of this harry wheelan as attorney general one of the things he does is he brings a case as he sees this going on and he says uh you know look I'm bringing a case that, you know, cabinet ministers cannot be going in and revealing anything from cabinet, uh, you know, that's in there. And he wins this case. And the courts decide, yes, you know, cabinet confidentiality is sacrosanct and you cannot, under the constitution as it stands, you cannot go in and then reveal what happens at that until various time limits have passed and whatever. Now, there's a huge debate, as you can imagine, at the time, because this looks like one of these things is, oh, it's done to muzzle a uh, debate. It's been said to hide what was being said at the cabinet. It's been done to save somebody or protect somebody. And of course, reasonable accusation of the time. Harry Wheelan himself would always maintained and did that there was nothing Unusual about this, other than Harry Whelan being what Harry Whelan was famous for, sometimes not understanding politics very well and just following the law and saying the more so than he does in the X case when the 
best thing for the government would have been if the Attorney General just ignored things and let this girl go have an abortion and the ex case instead he intervenes says well the rule of law is and that's just the rule of law I can't go against the rule of law that's what the constitution says therefore I follow it he'd a habit of doing this and he has a habit of intervening here again and saying look you can't go in and reveal cabinet conversations any of you no matter who it is all of you you've got to stop but it does look completely different. And, um, you know, that's open for debate. There are those who still say it would be, um, it was done to protect uh, somebody, uh, anybody within there, or that there was something untoward about it. But either way, that was what the Constitution did say. Um, um, whether or not you agree with his intervention, the fact is he's proven right and that the courts agree. Yes, that is true. You cannot be going in here and saying it. So we get to this point where they say we need a referendum which says that in certain investigations and for certain things, cabinet confidentiality can be breached. And you can have an argument that in certain circumstances it's needed. So, yes, um, you know, at the moment it's unbreachable and it's absolute. Everything is confidential. Um and that it's all about collective, this is all about collective responsibility. And that means that when you're part of a cabinet, you can't walk out and go, well, I was against it, even though everyone else is for it. Everybody is for it. It's a cabinet decision, a government decision, and you all must take responsibility for it. And without that cabinet confidentiality, you don't get that. You get breach of government all the time. Um, And they wanted in this referendum say that in certain circumstances, it could be possible to uh, breach that, particularly if there was, uh, you know, some public investigation that was very important. And there was good reason for that. Um, you know, could cabinet confidentiality protect somebody who was being corrupt? And maybe there was an investigation that was looking at that. And if it was doing that, then that's not what it was designed for. Therefore, let's have a referendum to outline this and and deliver now one of the things that's interesting of course about it is that again you think this is a fairly open and shut case you have Fine Gael, Labour a democratic left on one side who have come up and said well listen we need a referendum to this, this has dogged the previous two governments and you know we think there needs to be a referendum on it and then you have an election and a new government comes into place and they too say, yeah, there needs to be a referendum. So essentially, again, all of the toll in agreement. Yes, cabinet confidentiality is important and stands as it is, but we need to introduce that in certain circumstances, uh, it can be directed to be breached, particularly in matters of extreme national interest. Um, that will be different rule in future. Um, and this is interesting because it does, you then get into a whole debate on what is national interest and, you know, what is it good? Is it the right thing to do? You know, are you going down a, a slippery slope? But ultimately, everybody's in agreement. So you would think, again, that the public would be overwhelmingly in favour of, of this too. And you would think that the media and many of the others who have been very much against this would be... Uh, very much uh, you know against what happened in the beef tribunal and saying they want openness and transparency which are the buzzwords at the time that again this should be part and and that this is a positive step because we're getting rid of that absolute thing 
But again, here's one of the weird things with referendums. Sometimes people are opposed to the referendum, not because they're opposed to what it's doing, but they're saying it's not doing enough. And that becomes a key part of this referendum in, in its own right. Because for many people, um, this referendum is, is, is maybe a technical issue, but for others, it's not. Uh, it's it's something that doesn't go far enough. It doesn't do. They would like much more transparency. They would like much more openness from the government. And I'm going to read you a little piece that's from Dr. Jared Hogan, uh, who's a lecturer in law in Trinity College in Dublin and was a member of the Constitution Review Group that he wrote in the Irish Times. And just to quote a little piece from that that gives you a flavour from it. He says, quote, if this constitutional amendment is passed, it will mean that cabinet confidentiality cannot be invoked to prevent any future tribunal from getting to the heart of the matter. Unfortunately, however, the wording proposed is far too narrow. The new amendment will absolutely copper fasten the earlier Supreme Court decision for absolute confidentiality in all circumstances, save for the two exceptions just mentioned. And then only where the High Court makes an order to this effect. This wording will have very unfortunate consequences, of which, to illustrate this point, the following example must suffice. In December 1992, a few months after the Supreme Court's decision, it was reported that certain public records due to be released under the 30-year rule were not released on the ground that they revealed discussions at government meetings. The Taoiseach then intervened and ordered their release saying that the operation of the 30-year rule had not been considered by the Supreme Court in its judgment. But if the bill in its present form is passed, this argument will no longer be available to rescue administrators from the absurdities of an absolute cabinet confidentiality rule. For the new amendment will contain an express ironclad prohibition on disclosure save in two limited circumstances, of which this is not one, and then only if the High Court makes the order to this effect. It will thus effectively bar much historical research about the background to government decisions. End quote. Now, he's saying here that what's going to happen is that, you know, you can't create, uh, it's not going far enough and, and it's going to copper fasten it. Apart from the two things of major national interest and investigations, we're not even going to be able to do historical research. Um, he goes on to argue that the, the Labour Party wanted to create further limited exceptions to the law, but didn't get to do that. Uh, and that really this isn't going far enough at all. Uh, with where what he feels is needed uh, if you're going to, to deal with an open uh, cabinet and, and government uh, you know, operating. As John Bruton had said when he took over in government, he wanted to operate behind a pane of glass, which makes it difficult with cabinet confidentiality. Now, some of the stuff that was out and, and, and presented in this it's very difficult. I mean, the, 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 there's a document produced, again, which is part of this difficulty for new governments now in trying to come to a, a sense of what do we do in these referendums where you know, up to these points in a referendums, a government took a side and then said, look, we believe you vote yes to it. And the government spends the government money, if you like, the taxpayers' money on telling you why the yes vote is the correct vote. But, of course, that's been challenged in the courts, as we, we looked at in previous episodes. And they are told you can't do that. You must use your own party funds for backing a, a, a yes vote. After that, all must be spent equally. 
And there's all kinds of thoughts. How do you do that? Do you give money equally to every party of taxpayers' money? Or do you produce something that's there? And this is where referendum commissions come in. Now, on this, I'm looking at a document at the moment here where it was um, the proposal on cabinet confidentiality. And the first step is they decide to produce a document with the arguments for and against. I have to say, this is a really, really difficult document to break down. Uh, there's no way I could possibly even... Uh, read out all of it um but i read some it's just all text there's no pictures no anything else like that and it contains a statement of the case in favor of the proposed amendment to the constitution um and i just quote from it uh, the opening part quote the present position in 1992 the supreme court held that our constitution implicitly provided that the contents and details of discussions at government meetings are absolutely confidential as a result this this, as a result of this decision, tribunals and courts of law are not entitled to investigate government discussions. Veil of secrecy exists. This veil can only be lifted or removed by the Irish people. The amendment expressly inserts into the Constitution the principle of confidentiality. However, it also contains two exceptions to allow for the disclosure of government discussions. The High Court, which is an independent body, is authorised to determine the disclosure of discussions on a particular matter should be made, one, in the interests of the administration of justice by a court, and two, by virtue of an overriding public interest where a tribunal applies for such disclosure. End quote. Now, this document then goes on to give quite a lengthy discussion on the benefits of inserting confidentiality in the Constitution, um, which says stuff like, you know, in order for the government to do its job, ministers must be free to express their opinions in confidence. It goes on to say a minister may wish to express an opinion in support for policy or strategy that he believes is in the national interest, but may adversely affect the constituency he or she represents. Um, the amendment enshrines that confidentiality of government discussions um, is no longer dependent on judicial interpretation. Um, and it says that corruption and dishonesty can feature in a political system and therefore having this disclosure will really help that. And, you know, it goes on. But this is a huge length of text. And to be quite honest, if you are Joe Public, are you going to read this page? Never. I don't believe anybody is actually sitting down reading it to start and even look at what's on the page of, of, of lengthy text and then get down to the bottom. A vote in favour of is a yes vote. That's quite a lot. And then you turn it over and it's the statement of the case against. This is the same document. Um, there are a number of different arguments against the proposal. Um, and, and again, huge long line of these. And it says, number one, that there's no change necessary or desirable. Absolute confidentiality should not be undermined. It should be maintained. It would inhibit the expression of discussions at cabinet. It says the government is resp concurrently responsible to the dole alone uh, and, and should not be challenged by the courts. Again, goes on long lengthy list of things for no. Um, it then says, uh, quote, the proposal is too narrow and restrictive. The proposal by now expressly recognising cabinet confidentiality copper fastens it in unacceptably narrow terms, should not be limited to court proceedings. End quote. It's, it's a long, long list. And that's one of the things that becomes a difficulty in this referendum. Um, then it goes into a list of technical objections and it says a vote against is a no vote. Now, if you're reading this coming from a, a, where you may have been used to, government sent you in, this is vote yes, somebody else sends you something, this is vote no, and you're used to that and you may be says, 
this is actually quite difficult and it's a very difficult thing that they're producing here because what it's trying to do is number one give you a sense of um these are the arguments but they have to be bona fide arguments because you know you can't just write anything and so you lose the emotive language you use the the kind of the the, the big appeal so you're getting these very dead technical arguments that are made in a very specific language because they want to say well it has to be factually for and against but then it's on the same track but it's neither one thing or another so if anything for many voters this becomes more confusing um than what was there before um rather than helping inform here document saying here this side of the page tells you vote yes because but not in any emotive terms like we're used to. Not as going to vote no because, and in these quite sterile terms and approach, this is going to make it really, really difficult. And of course, you will have debate over some sides. Oh, well, our side wasn't written as well as the other sides and blah, de, blah. You get all those arguments too. So you can start to see how this idea of funding things equally and putting both sides of the argument together become really, really difficult. Ultimately, uh, the referendum itself is not something that, again, catches particular fire with the people. Um, but it is interesting that despite all of this, um, it does get a, a, a turnout. The, the turnout is about 40, it's over 47%, just over 47% turnout. And again, you know, people do kind of feel that this is something that maybe... Um, is important and, and while they're out voting for the presidency they are going to vote on this but it's close it's close enough in referendum terms uh the yes vote it is passed but the yes vote comes in at 52.65 percent so almost 53 percent the no vote 47.35 percent so just over the 47 percent it is I would say somewhat uncomfortably close, probably largely because it, you would have to imagine here that for a lot of voters, it was a case of not particularly that they wanted everything at cabinet to be confidential because that's not really an argument that you find many people in the public saying, let's have more secrecy from the government. Um, but probably because many were swung by the idea that maybe it was, you know, a step in being... Uh, too restrictive or hasn't gone far enough and maybe people wanted it to go further but that was as far as it went and that was what the government got through now some of the other things i don't think we have had huge difficulties with it ever since in terms of historical research revealing of of, of documents uh cabinet uh, discussions and ultimately what's probably strange about all this is that cabinet confidentiality between then and now seems to have changed a lot in how it's turned. There was a time when, you know, leaking a budget was was huge. It was a big deal. You know, Phil Hogan was 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 lost his his, his position uh, in the mid nineties around this sending a press release a little bit too early from the office as to what was in the budget, and then had to resign. You know, these kind of things cropped up, and it was like the budget was a big surprise on budget day. Nowadays. You don't get that kind of confidentiality around the budget. Everybody knows what's in the budget for a week. It's leaked to media for weeks. Parliamentary party meetings of parties happen very much, you know, within it. And afterwards, stories began to leak out and whatever. Now, you're pretty much getting a live feed from the parliamentary party meeting as it's happening as to what has just been said and who has argued back against us and who's for it, who's saying... 
you know, people are effectively tweeting journalists or, or, or emailing journalists or texting them from the meeting room. Uh, and, and those parliamentary party meetings are no longer kind of quiet. And cabinet confidentiality suffered a little bit the same. It's still very confidential in there. You still don't really know exactly what's said, but it has evolved from a time you are getting more and more stories of there being rows at cabinet. And, you know, that perhaps somebody expressed a view at cabinet uh, that they weren't too happy with it. And it's rumoured and they're not coming out and officially saying it, but it's rumoured and talked about in the media at a much deeper level than it was back then uh, about some of these things. So I suppose over time, this evolved and maybe modern communications made that just part and parcel of what happens uh, but you got a more perhaps open government by default um, it's just not maybe perhaps as much behind the closed door or as collective as it once was whether or not that's a good or bad thing is open for debate because it does mean there does seem to be less willingness to have these kind of behind closed doors rows. There seems to be more kind of emphasis on always putting on the green jersey and we're always Ireland and we're always the government and we're all together in this. So maybe it does have a dampening effect on that. Um, certainly people would say parliamentary party meetings have become something more sterile, uh, something where, you know, some people will stand up and speak, but for a vast majority of people, it's don't get up and talk at a parliamentary party meeting because you're going to be quoted in the Independent or the Times within the hour. Uh, so, no, just sit down and say nothing and find out which way the wind blows and figure it out after that. Whereas maybe before, people would have been willing to say something and have a bit of an argument and, you know, get away with it, not be heard. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. Who knows? But it does seem to have changed. But that cabinet confidentiality one did change at least how and when um, cabinet confidentiality could be broken. Although it did enshrine that idea that it is confidential and an important part of the operation of government. But it became, again, one of those referendums that we don't particularly look back on uh, with any real sense of it being a landmark uh, particular decision or that something that really excited the Irish people one way or another. So that brings us to the third referendum that we want to look at, which was, of course, the Amsterdam Treaty, which was held on the same day as the referendum uh, of on the Good Friday Agreement. So... Again, an uh, important uh, day voting-wise and certainly one to get uh, lots of voters out, one would think. Now, the Amsterdam Treaty, though, on its own is an important one because there was a lot of change going on as regards Europe in Ireland. So those of you who will remember, as we looked, the European treaties are particularly interesting from a referendum perspective in Ireland. Because, you know, we're watching here Ireland evolving from that huge uh, support that was there for joining the EEC, uh, even though some people, most notably, you know, I'm always going to remind uh, people like Labour because they were, you know, against us back in the day. Michael D. Higgins didn't want us to join. They changed, though, over time because a lot of people found, you know, look, we're wrong. And as you come into mainstream politics, Labour were one of the first parties that experienced this as they came into government, as they came in through the 80s, as they came in through the 90s, they become very much pro-European. They're not the only ones. Happens to parties all the time. As you begin to see, Ireland begins to evolve 
gets used to European treaties, gets used to these these uh, the benefits of being within uh, the European Economic Community or the European Union as it becomes after the Maastricht Treaty in, in 92. But as you have followed through those European referendums, you notice that there is that kind of, there's a, there's a little bit of fall off from the time they joined the EEC to the Single European Act in 86, when maybe some doubts begin to come in. But that's where you see parties like Labour. On the political level, you see parties moving in the opposite direction, becoming more European, and maybe the public becoming slightly less European. Um, and, and that's only fractionally uh, when it comes to referendums. But some of their worries, perhaps, are part and parcel of, of what happens in, in referendums and, and what they worry about in terms of the numbers or figures that the referendums begin to show. You see a slight drop off in, in numbers voting yes uh, in favour of treaties. But very small. You're still talking about, you know, I mean, you're, you're looking at the, the Maastricht referendum and still almost 70%. Uh, so it's very much, you know, that the public know and understand what they want from Europe and that that's where they feel they are best best served. But the political parties are moving in different and new political parties come up and it's almost, you know, just one of these rites of passage that you see in, in politics uh, time and time again in Ireland. When you see a new party arrive on the scene or, or suddenly start to get seats, they are nearly always opposed to Europe. Um, and they're telling people to vote no to a treaty or they might say we're more not anti-Europe we're just opposed to this treaty or this type of Europe and all of that kind of thing <clears throat> and they almost invariably say that at the beginning and one of the reasons they do that is because there is uh, a market the same with everybody else as far as we can actually make a name and get some, some airtime and everything else for ourselves but being a little bit against it um, and I'm pushing the boat out here so you see this with, with, with parties. You see it with the, the multitude of very far left parties from Republican Sinn Féin to, to, you know, we've seen it with, with you know, some of the, the very hard left campaign socialist party. But you see it with the likes of Sinn Féin itself, uh, Sinn Féin that we know today. You know how to see it with the Green Party in particular. We'll see it with Democratic Left and that's where we're going to see it in this referendum. They all have this thing where we're going against us and then opportunity for government comes in and government changes you. Government changes you because in government you realise the real rules of limited resources and what you get to do with them. It's not a fantastic world where you get to do everything. As soon as you walk into government, you make compromises and decisions because there's a limited pot of money. And that's what it really comes down to once you get in there. There's limited time, limited money and limited support for any particular measure. So you get doing what you can. And that means there's other stuff you don't get to do. And very often, one of the things that seems to happen time and time again in it is the value of the European Union to that, to those finances, to those policies, to that public support becomes very apparent to those who end up in government. And inevitably, they become pro-European by their experience in government. So uh, it's just an interesting sidebar to this, because as I say, you'll see this with Democratic Left in, in this elect, in this vote uh, referendum on the Amsterdam Treaty. 
Now, again, there are some referendums that stick out in our mind. Probably in Ireland in recent times, people will remember ones like Lisbon and Nice. And one of the reasons we remember them is because they come... Not too long after this, we're talking in the early 2000s, uh, to, to in, in that decade, first decade of the 2000s, we get Nice and Lisbon, where Ireland votes no. And that becomes a big shock. So when we're tracking back here to Amsterdam, you're looking for some of those seeds that will be planted in that. Because when you go back to 92 in Maastricht, you still get that 70% yes vote, almost universal agreement. It's a powerful endorsement of the treaty. It puts it back on the yes side after the Danes have voted no. Ireland puts Europe back on track. Wonderful. But all of a sudden, um, you have this one in the middle, Amsterdam, and it doesn't stick out again in our memory. Again, probably overshadowed by the fact it took place on the same day as the Good Friday Agreement. Probably overshadowed in that it doesn't. It, it made a lot of technical changes, but maybe not a lot of, of some of the broader, bigger changes that came with Maastricht. Or were coming perhaps in later treaties as we saw them. However, um, it was an important treaty in its own. It, it, it started this transfer of certain powers on certain things to the European Parliament from national governments. Now, you've got to remember that's an important step in an institution like the European Union because the European Union is a club of countries. It's come together. It's very much formalised itself as a union um, after the Maastricht Treaty. Now, Amsterdam is going to take this a step further, particularly in certain areas, and say, right, so if we're this union, there are certain things that we need to be working on together and, and that need to be worked on at a European level, as opposed to, you know, every national government doing its own thing, because that's fine when you have an EEC and we're just doing some economic cooperation. But as we want to be bigger and broader and actually come together and compete on a world stage, there are certain things we need a policy on uniformly. Now, let me give you two recent examples of where this debate, if you like, still happens. Um, so, for instance, those of you who remember the financial crisis will remember that one of the arguments was that the EU took far too long to really have an EU-wide response, an adequate one, to the financial crisis. And you had each country going ahead and doing things in the early stages, and some of that made it worse. Um, you will have noticed at the moment, as we're currently recording this, one of the big debates is vaccines. And you see that the EU has got a uh, deal in place for all of its members so as they're not competing with each other to buy vaccines they've bought them as one block which gives them more buying power but equally you will see people kind of complaining at times that the eu has not responded to the pandemic the covid19 pandemic in a sufficiently uniform way that again, countries, some of whom are really too small on the global stage, are ending up competing for PPE equipment. They're competing for research. Data isn't being shared. We're not really approaching this as a massive, big European bloc. They were the same kind of arguments that would have been there in the, the early 90s, that there were big problems that had to be faced. And therefore, some of these were better dealt with at European level. And the ones they were focused on then was legislation, say, on immigration, that Europe needed 
its own response across Europe, a uniform way of doing it. And, and you see that today. That's why we talk about there are European agreements to take refugees into the EU rather than being for each country. Now, we'll debate about how many each country takes and so on and so forth. But the overall approach is dictated by the EU. And that's something that was a step. Within that, perhaps you begin to see one of the steps that so much many years later will come that Brexit issue on immigration where they get obsessed with immigration and they begin to feel, hold on, we've got to stop this EU thing. Maybe seeds of that are starting to be planted with, with some of the moves within Amsterdam. Um, civil criminal laws, um, you know, working in partnership across uh, security policy, all of those things and how they're going to allow new members in become a little bit more for the European Parliament than for some of the uh, individual states. Now, they still have their own rights and authorities and rules and all these areas, but there's a policy being set. It also sets something of a vision of the EU on a worldwide, uh, a worldwide scale. Uh, and that's kind of important for them because it leads, lays down responsibilities on common foreign and security policy. Uh, projecting the EU to the outside world becomes something. How it protects its interests, how it acts on the international stage. All of this comes down with strategies from the European Council and, and how they're going to operate. So there is a big change here, but again... These are kind of changes that don't set the world alight when we're all just going into work in the morning and we're, you know, busy. This isn't the kind of stuff we think that deeply about. And therefore was a kind of difficult one to maybe get across in the the, the opening weeks of a campaign. However, you do have um, pretty much all parties in agreement that, you know, all the main parties are in agreement here that, you know, this is a good thing. Amsterdam is a good thing. But you have, of course, parties that are opposed to it. The Green Party, for instance, is not in favour of this. And, 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 you know, again, that's that thing of the new party coming in. But one of the really interesting ones, I think, uh, within it was the fact that you had the Democratic left as, as a party. They're one of the best examples here in that, as I say, you get these small parties, um, you know, the Greens still at this stage being a small party. Sinn Féin at this stage were a small party. These parties say, you know, no, we don't agree with this uh, this treaty at all. But then all of a sudden you have some parties, Democratic Left being one, who were opposed to Maastricht in 1992. Very much opposed to it. I mean, what they said was Maastricht is not good enough. It must be changed. Vote no. Very definite about it. Um, they said the fallout would be nuclear from it. Uh, big business would get richer. More people would be unemployed as a result of it. Um, it gave us much less say in Europe. Um, and it would be much better to vote against it. However, uh, on the other hand, Democratic left going to government in 1995 with Labour and Fine Gael. Uh, there's no election. Uh, it's the, the fall of the government in 94 and then they have the numbers to form a new government without an election and they do that and they get in to this rainbow coalition. And then you come to the Amsterdam Treaty, which they have been part of. So although this treaty will be voted on under the, the Fianna Fáil-led administration, they've been part of the government's work in leading up to that and being part of it. 
And now all of a sudden they are for the Amsterdam Treaty when that happens. And that's just one of those really interesting shifts in how parties go. Because being in government, they couldn't really then come back out and say, well, we're now part of those who say we're still against the EU. They've been there. They've been in the EU. They've seen it at work. And that's changed them. Uh, And that Europeanisation process does tend to happen once you are in government because there's certain realities you have to open up to. Um, And and that is important and it does uh, have an impact. But Amsterdam, immigration is in there, as you see, but it doesn't really feature at this point. Now, in later referendums, you're going to see immigration rising as an issue. It doesn't really feature as a massive issue for, for Amsterdam. The thing that really gets people going in Amsterdam is back to that old chestnut, if you like, of neutrality. Um, now, what we said in European referendums up to this point, they have been always dominated by divorce, abortion, neutrality. They're the blessed trinity or unholy trinity, depending on your view, of which the people will always come back to. These are the issues. Europe is going to introduce abortion. Europe is going to introduce divorce. Europe is going to um, cause us to lose neutrality. Now, as you can see by Amsterdam, there's an interesting thing here. The abortion one, they've been through the mill on us. They've been through the mill on us in 1992 as well. Um, it, it, it sifts back a little bit in this one. Divorce is kind of settled after the 95 referendum. Ireland has introduced divorce, so you can no longer say the EU are introducing it. Ireland's introduced it. Now, the next one is this whole area of neutrality. How do you get that across with people? How do you have that? And that becomes the one that I think the no side really focus on in this. It becomes the major issue of the referendum. Uh, uh, for for many of the people, particularly those opposed to it, and for the general public in their worries about uh, neutrality. And Fianna Fáil kind of had a little bit, there was this partnership for peace uh, peace within the, the treaty, which Fianna Fáil dithered on a little bit between when it was in opposition, saying, no, 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 we can't be part of certain things like the partnership for peace, which is peacekeeping missions, because it looks a bit dangerous, it's not UN. Um... And then they change position and suddenly, you know, they're in government, they're, they're, they're part of the Amsterdam Treaty, they're signing up to it and, and they're kind of okay with this. Uh, so again, you have parties having their, creating their own challenges for themselves within this process. Now, to give a picture of this, I'm going to read from a paper uh, by Dr. Karen Devine of uh, DCU, where she uh, talks about parties' attitudes towards neutrality and the ESDP um, and the party positions in the 1990s. Uh, I'm just going to read quite a lengthy piece maybe out of this, but I think it gives a really strong background of exactly what was going on, particularly with neutrality. And she says, quote, Against the backdrop of the end of the Cold War, the 1992 Maastricht Treaty introduced a common foreign and security policy that proposed the eventual framing of a current defence policy. This was revised further in the progressive framing of the policy under the 1997 Amsterdam Treaty. The latter introduced a CFSP policy unit infrastructure, a new post of high representative for the CFSP, a deeper relationship with the Western European Union, WEU, military alliance, with provisions for future integration into the EU. 
The WEU-EU merger was subsequently initiated by a European Council decision in Helsinki in 1999. A new decision-making mechanism to avoid possible vetoes on proposed EU actions through abstention and a remit of Petersburg tasks, including humanitarian and rescue tasks, peacekeeping tasks and tasks of combat forces in crisis management, including peacekeeping. Taken together, these provisions signal the material intent of the new political entity called the European Union to achieve a common foreign policy coupled with a so-called crisis management military bite. In Ireland, neutrality and EU defence policy issues started to show signs of politicisation, mainly due to the activities of interest groups. Following on from the 1995 McKenna Judgment and 1998 Referendum Act, a newly created Referendum Commission was charged with the task of providing information on both sides of the debate in the Amsterdam uh, Treaty referendum campaign. Oscillations between concepts of military and active neutrality, plus accusations of secrecy over European defence policy, continued to characterise large parties' behaviour upon leaving office. For example, Fine Gael accused the Fianna Fáil government of being committed to hiding the reality of discussions at an EU level on new security arrangements. In opposition, Fianna Fáil assumed the mantle of chief architect and defender of neutrality and promised to hold a referendum on membership of NATO's Partnership for Peace, seen for other countries as a gratuitous signal that Ireland is moving away from its neutrality and towards gradual incorporation into NATO and the Western European Union in due course. But within months of returning to power, Fianna Fáil led the government in joining the Partnership for Peace in 1999 without a referendum. In the meantime, Ireland's first white paper on foreign policy, uh, Government of Ireland 1996, produced by the Rainbow Coalition government, had belied the tension between the Labour Party's fundamental neutrality discourse, the values that underline Ireland's policy of neutrality have therefore informed almost every aspect of our foreign policy, according to the Labour Party in 1996, and Fine Gael's narrow concept of military neutrality. Quoted as, many have come to regard neutrality as a touchstone of our entire approach to international relations, even though in reality much of our policy is not dependent on a non membership of military alliance. With respect to positions on the ESDP, the Rainbow Coalition's white paper rejected full membership of the Western European Union and the assumption of its mutual defence clause, noting it would not be compatible with an intention to remain neutral. But Ireland but committed Ireland to participation in the Petersburg tasks, act, uh, tasks in the area of humanitarian and peacekeeping operations, end quote. Now, that gives you a sense of where this debate on neutrality was at. Now, if you've been following the previous referendum campaigns on Europe, this is always a biggie. And it's how you define neutrality. Is it absolute neutrality? Are you uh, neutral on everybody's side? Is it a particular type of neutrality that you're just not taking part, but you're supporting a side or facilitating a side? What is it? Ireland has struggled with this. Ireland has struggled. And not to go over old ground, but it is important to recap that Ireland has struggled with this since World War II. We were neutral in World War II. And because of that... We, we, it was an important step and there's very valid arguments as to why we should have been neutral in World War II. Absolutely, it saved Ireland huge destruction, heartache, death, 
everything else uh, that went with that in, in that time. The reality of Ireland was that there are lots of books and sources and evidence which you've looked at before, which, which, which point to the fact that Ireland was neutral, but kind of on the Allies' side, you know, troops kind of made their way back into the 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 fold in in if they were allied they're kind of held if they were german and ended up here things like that that we were a little bit more on the allies side than uh, the Germans. If we were absolutely neutral, you know, the, the, the old thing holds true. People always still go back to de Valera commiserating with the German people on the death of Hitler. But he was their leader. Um, if you're absolutely neutral, then you're absolutely fair on both sides. But of course, we weren't. Nor were we absolutely neutral. We didn't want to commiserate with Hitler. We didn't even like Hitler. We had nothing to do with it. Now, as the horrors of World War Two and the horrors of the Nazi regime became apparent across the world and people discussed it, Ireland was left out a little bit in the cold right up until the 60s by being so neutral because it was a little bit like you weren't there when you were needed. You weren't really standing up against the horrific regimes like Nazism. Um, so neutrality carries with it. And people sometimes, you know, hold it up as this wonderful thing. But it carries with it a price, always. Um, but, as I say, we've gone over this in previous uh, episodes, but it also has a huge value. And it allows Ireland to walk on the world stage and be trusted by people of different sides, different arguments. It allows us to be an honest broker. And it does and did have practical benefits in saving Ireland hugely at that time. Now, the fact is, um, you get into the political parties here, as Karen Devine points out, and they've, they've debated this. They debated this in the previous referendums too. What is neutrality? And they differ a little bit. Fine Gael, kind of a nuanced version of neutrality. There are many different types of neutrality you can have. We probably have never quite been sure what one we're definitely operating here. Fianna Fáil like to say we're a bit more on the neutrality, guardians of neutrality. You know, Fine Gael probably have pushed the idea sometimes that, look, reality is we need to be part of some unified defence. And it comes back to their practical kind of thing of if we were attacked in the morning, would we expect someone to come to our aid? Yes, we would. Would we expect that it's it's if if something came into our airspace, would we maybe need to scramble RAF jets to help us? Probably. Would we be looking to the French or the Germans if we were invaded to come save us? Probably. But then we'd never do the same. You you can't kind of have it that way. And of course, when you're talking about things on a world stage, there are big disasters. Now, mid nineties, there are a couple of big things that have happened in world politics that I think need to be thought about. Uh, Karen Devine alludes to them there, and. I think they need to be thought about that was part and parcel of where the Irish psyche was on this and why these things were becoming problematic for politicians in the context of this treaty. The fall of the Berlin Wall um, and the, the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe changed things and it changed things hugely for Europe. Europe now, number one, is coming into a new age for itself, no longer terrified of, you know, the big Soviet takeover and and maybe no longer needing America's help to keep the Soviets at bay. Europe is now, by the mid-90s, becoming a lot more confident that the Soviet threat is gone. Um, therefore, you know, Europe can now work on its own and come into its own. And that's a positive. Europe is also looking at things like the reunification of Germany. So Germany has reunified East and West Germany coming together. 
but that's been taking a big step for the EU. That 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 whole and the helping of the facilitation of that has been a big step for the EU. And now they have a raft of Eastern European countries that were part of the Soviet Union beginning to knock on the door and go, we'd like to be part of the European Union. And for many of them, the poster child of that is Ireland. Small, poor state that has radically advanced and become hugely wealthy on the back of EU membership. Hugely wealthy comparatively to where it was and and comparative to many of these states. They want to be the new Ireland's in this scenario. They're about to start a very torturous process and part of what the EU is doing in Amsterdam about immigration, all those kind of rules are saying we need to assimilate these. These are going to become part of it. We're going to grow. And the EU knows it needs to grow. It needs to grow in order to have a market that competes on a world stage with the US and with China and, and emerging power. So they're looking really long term stuff. But in that part, that collapse of the Soviet Union has changed that for Europe. And Europe is now thinking, so, well, now we need to be able to talk about these big issues, big questions and have a common policy. Because if we're going to be a common big block on the world stage, then our values have to stand for something. And the EU must stand for something. And that has to be commonly agreed among us. How do we do that? The other problem, of course, that's occurred in world politics at this time is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union by the early 90s, there was this argument that all questions, it was the end of history, all questions were now answered and therefore Western democracies, as in the United States, had won all over. The United States had no enemies. One of the the problems for the United States has been in recent times that it's lacked a really clear enemy. Once it had the Soviets there, that united everybody against the Soviets. America goes in in the 90s into this kind of world police role and it's dragged into it by other nations who are not really ready to assume China wasn't up to speed at this stage in in, in world politics. It wasn't really a dominant player. Um, the Soviet Union was collapsed. Russia was just trying to find its feet again. And European Union is growing into something but still trying to find these treaties that will allow it to have a common voice. And issues arise. So some of the things I'm going to point out to you here that just that have to be considered in the neutrality debate was things like Somalia, um, famine um, and uh, civil war, uh, problems for people being in, in there, being, being hampered and, and watching this disaster unfold on our TV screens and being pretty powerless. Now, I'm going to give you, let's, let's play devil's advocate here, uh, one of the people who goes over at the time is Ireland's president, who is very popular in Ireland, Mary Robinson, and she does a tremendous job over there in calling international attention. It's one of the reasons she goes on to the, the uh, UN uh, refugees uh, post, because you know, she really draws attention on and, and she, it's something she really deeply cares about. And she goes to Somalia and she talks about, you know, why the world cannot stand by and let this happen, that there has to be intervention there. However, when we say in the mid-90s there needs to be intervention, who are you actually going to get to intervene and make a position secure in a country where there's absolute war and people are going to shoot? Who are you calling on? Because when it comes to that whole area in Somalia of how we're going to do that, 
it ain't going to be Irish kids that are going to get sent out there. In fact, it's not probably going to be that many European kids or at best, you know, or Europe will only follow at this stage if somebody else is going to do it. You're asking America to get involved. And America does. And some of those kids are killed. And some of them are in helicopters which are shot down. But America is the only country at this point that can really actually do that. And this is one of those challenges for us and for us on a moral perspective in neutrality as we looked at it at this point in the 90s was who was there in the world? After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was no longer a, a balance where once America could say, well, we won't get involved because if we do, the Soviets will say, you're pushing your Western agenda. We're going to get involved. If you get involved, and that would be a war. Therefore, nothing can happen. And it seemed like that block was gone. But in some ways, it just created an even bigger mess because now there was nobody to counterbalance the power. And when you wanted some kind of intervention, it was never an agreed intervention. It seemed to be quite a one-sided unilateral intervention of the United States. You had the Gulf War, of course, as well, uh, and, and when the, the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq, and we know all the mess that that has still created on down the decades. But what happened in it? You know, when people said, right, the UN can't have this invasion of us, yes, we got a multi-country coalition to fight uh, in uh, Kuwait, but it was the Americans led it. And it was the Americans that were the drive behind actually making it happen. And they have assumed this world police role. Now, when you're a bloc like the EU, you're looking at that, and this is making you uneasy, because while you can contribute troops, I mean, you're not really there militarily. Um, and that's a problem. Because so long as you're not there, then these guys are calling the tune in the United States. And what they say kind of goes as to what's in view we intervene in and what we don't. Now, one of the other problems on the EU's doorstep, you've got to remember at this time, is the problems in Yugoslavia. When communism falls and Yugoslavia goes into free fall and civil war between the, the, the Serbs and Croats and Bosnia becomes this huge mess and there are these horrific crimes and this is on Europe's doorstep. It doesn't get any closer than this and Europe is struggling for how it's going to respond to this crisis absolutely right on its border. You know, it's, it is literally sitting watching genocides happen on its doorstep and Europe is looking utterly powerless. And I actually remember going to uh, uh, going to mass and going to a, a prayer service after the mass for the people of Bosnia because many of the people who are in the parish have been to Medjugorje and said you know big experience and loved it and all and the priest praying for the people of Bosnia but praying for intervention and the thing he says is, you know, if there was oil there, they'd be already intervening. And it's a terrible thing to say that we don't do it because, you know, these countries are only interested in their oil. And, you know, if they were interested in people, they could stop this happening. And, of course, that was a well-received argument and people were shocked about this at the time. And you can understand because, you know, how can you allow something like these crimes happen on the doorstep of Europe. But ultimately, when you start talking about intervening, can Europe actually intervene here militarily? No, because these guys are going to shoot you down. They're not interested in, you know, Europe coming in here. You're getting into a war. 
there's only one person going to sort this out or one country going to sort it out, the United States, World Police. And eventually the United States do get involved and manage to solve this with airstrikes alone. But it again points to a real problem for Europe that they're beginning to realise that even on our doorstep we can't handle these problems unless we start getting America. We're back to where we were. We needed the Americans to stop the Soviets. Now we need the Americans because we just can't get our act together at any time on these things. And that's why immigration and you see things now in the Mediterranean where Ireland is part of humanitarian efforts and Irish boats saving people in the Mediterranean. All of that comes from part of this Amsterdam Treaty which says there are big issues in the world. We have to be involved. So they were big humanitarian issues. We have to get involved in. Ireland is cool with that. We're kind of cool with the peacekeeping bit. We're kind of, we don't want to be involved in the military kind of concept. That's a good reason for that. We're pretty much too small and ill-equipped anyway. So I don't think there's any particular pressure or desire from Europe to have the Irish involved. We don't bring that much to the military table. But Ireland does have this problem in terms of what it's signing up to here. And this becomes a real concern for political parties at this time because they're still trying to define wanting to say things and do like Mary Robinson, call for intervention in countries. But, you know, we've got to take responsibility for some of that when we do. There will be deaths, there will be lives lost and and, and are we part of it or not? And there are always questions we struggle with. And in Amsterdam, it begins to become a thing that Irish people are much more conscious of now Hold on, where is the European Union going? Because at this point, it's the first time people get a sense of this really does look like they're looking at having some kind of army and common policy. Before we could get away with saying they're not really, it's not really a long-term thing, but don't worry about it. Now, there really is the guts of how these countries can come together and have a common position, uh, security, foreign policy, and the obvious follow-on from that is going to be some kind of military policy. But you can see why that has suddenly become part of this treaty. You can see those world events beginning to take shape that leave the European Union saying, we've got to do something in this space or we're going to be left behind and you know, we can't claim to be a world power and we can't claim to influence world powers if we're not part of it. Now, Smaller parties were, of course, still part and parcel of the debate in Ireland and very much opposed to certain elements of this. I'm going to return to Karen Devine, who sums this up uh, quite nicely. Quote, The smaller parties started to make their mark in Irish politics in the 1990s. Green Party representation went from one to two TDs in 97, whilst two member, uh, two member of the European Parliament seats were gained and subsequently retained until 2004. Sinn Féin won a Dáil seat in ninety seven and two MEPs in 2004. Sinn Féin and the Greens promoted themselves as alternatives to larger political parties based on their defence of Irish neutrality. For example, Sinn Féin President Jerry Adams argued that the question of neutrality underscores the importance of providing voters with Sinn Féin as an option in elections and in grassroots political activity. And the Green Party 1997 manifesto took over the Labour Party's call to enshrine a principle of neutrality in the Constitution. A significant Europeanisation dynamic emerged in Ireland in the 1990s with the increased politicisation of the neutrality ESDP issue, namely in the form of changes in ideological distance, separating political parties and the emergence of European-centred dimensions of party competition. 
this process of politicisation of the EU by political parties was mostly confined to referendum periods with little evidence of parties competing on EU issues during elections. Nevertheless, the U-turn by Fianna Fáil on the Partnership for Peace membership and Fine Gael's shift to a less forthright position, one of silent hostility, on neutrality, show the political calculations made by the two largest parties in attempt to differentiate themselves along this increasingly important European-centred policy dimension during referendum campaigns. Similarly, Sinn Féin highlighted its adherence to positive or active neutrality given the vacuum left by the drift of rival left-wing parties, Labour and Democratic Left, towards maximalist AESDP. Now, the problem you can see there is that as the smaller parties come in, they see an opportunity to say, we're going to defend neutrality, that's where it's at, this is the threat to neutrality, and they're really pushing this line, and it does get some backing from the public who are increasingly worried about this. And the reason you get that kind of dissonance in there is because at a top level, you've governments who are part of a European Union who are acutely aware that these big global events and shifts are causing major players to be embroiled in big central questions and they've got to decide now you could go back to de valera's um address to the league of nations where he said that the small nations should not be involved in the affairs of larger ones um and you could take that as a policy and say we ireland just stay out of all this but if you take that policy then you are of course saying that you cannot be the one saying intervene in certain countries stop that genocide stop this because you're either neutral or you're not in an absolute sense and then there's these shades of neutrality which say well we're neutral but only on military neutrality but not politically neutral and we're friends with this countries and you can land aircraft here and you can do that we want to be part of the effort but then you run into problems when people don't understand how that neutrality works. And Ireland doesn't really have that definition. And the smaller parties take advantage of that by taking these kind of absolute neutral positions. Now, there it was mentioned by Karen Devine about Democratic Left uh, and their move. And just to pick up what she says on that and about them, because they forms an interesting uh, perspective on, on the parties and, and where they go. Uh, she says, quote, Democratic left shifted its position by the time of the May 1998 referendum on Amsterdam Treaty, joining Labour, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Progressive Democrats in advocating a yes vote. De Rossa's turnaround from demanding a renegotiation of the single European Act and campaigning for a no vote on the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 to support for the Amsterdam Treaty was premised on the argument that the prospect of EU militarisation had been abandoned. After Democratic Left merged with Labour in January 99, De Rossa had apparently become convinced by the need for an EU CFSP and called for a redefinition of neutrality to enable Ireland's full participation in it. This exemplifies the ways in which party elites involved in negotiations of the treaty at the European level appeared to adopt a cabinet-type responsibility to ensure ratification, regardless of clashes with party policy or the need to reverse previous policy positions. The Amsterdam Treaty provisions on potential Western European Union-EU merger prompted the Fianna Fáil-led government to promise a referendum if, in Ireland if the issue of European defence should arise in the future. The larger parties viewed Amsterdam's Petersburg tasks as consistent with the tradition of military neutrality. 
Based on support for active neutrality, the Greens were against the tasks which they interpreted as allowing unlimited EU military action and marking a shift in Irish foreign policy away from UN peacekeeping. The smaller parties of Sinn Féin, the Green Party and the Socialist Party campaigned against the treaty, partly due to perceived negative implications for Irish neutrality. In doing so, they appeared to represent a significant constituency, because neutrality was the top substantive policy reason for voting no in the referendum, just behind the lack of information, according to a primetime RTE exit poll on the 22nd of May 1998. End quote. Now there you see this this debate on 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 where, why why this develops so fast in Ireland because if you have a public who are kind of broadly unaware if you walked out and you said to people what is neutrality you've a public who are broadly unaware of exactly the myriad of definitions of neutrality you've a public who say we're neutral we don't get involved in wars and we don't take any side and we certainly don't go out shooting people that's what our neutrality is after that it's very vague but you get parties then trying to say well look what's we're part of peacekeeping missions though so we're not neutral when it comes to the un we're certainly part of that so we've already taken a step away from absolute neutrality because we're now in with the un um and we're happy to be on the peacekeeping missions but that's defined us for years but now you've the bigger parties saying well look there's a progression in that, that if you're in that, then we can do peacekeeping as part of the EU, which we need to start doing. There are borders, there are issues, there are humanitarian things, there's things like what's happening currently in the Mediterranean. You've got to take part in those. These are these Petersburg tasks, these are humanitarian things. So yes, Ireland can send a vessel and it can take drowning refugees out of the Mediterranean Sea uh, on an Irish vessel because we're signing up to this. We're signing up that there are certain humanitarian tasks. It's not a UN task, but it's certainly an EU one. Um, and therefore, as I say, now, again, most people are probably okay with that. But how far progressed is that? Because others are saying, no, this allows the EU then to start saying, well, we can go in there and we'll push a bit of peacekeeping beyond our border. You know, if, if Yugoslavia happened again, maybe we'd, we'd have to go in and we'd have to say, no, no, we're dividing these sides off from each other to stop the genocide. And would we agree with it? Would we disagree with it? Would we be part of it? What part of it would we be? All of those questions are still very much. And because people struggle with that neutrality, there is a large constituency that says in this, do you know what, this is This is a worry because this is one of the first times they've been told time and time again it doesn't really happen. It's not interested in EU militarisation. And you see even Pranche Starasa for a large part they're talking about it's dead, that, that militarisation project, therefore I'm okay with the European Union now. But is it? Because this is the first treaty that really seems to start talking about what we need. But then he comes to a view which is that kind of perhaps world view of there are big problems out there that you have to take a common position on. And we can't just ignore them. There are humanitarian other disasters. But once you start that, there will be other kinds of problems, disasters. There will be interventions. And what do you have? What is your capacity to actually take part in any of this? So that becomes one of the major challenges within the, the referendum. As I say, that's one of the reasons that people are particularly... Um, unsure about the referendum let's say if they're on the no side it's no longer maybe the the abortion and divorce on this they will well abortion will rear its head in later referendums again it hasn't gone away you know but divorce has it's just an interesting one how the divorce is just gone 
dealt with gone and that was one why as i say the 95 referendum was so important because it gave politicians that taste of once you deal with an issue it began gone it's gone from all other debates too um and perhaps was quite a seductive feeling for them but anyway in amsterdam they're still fighting this now some of the other stuff on the yes side of there so what what was it about this that uh drew parties in uh, and and was going to to, to win them an, uh, an election if you had the likes of uh labor Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, all part of it but one of the interesting ones i came across again from alan kinsella's uh, at election list collection um was a piece by the labor party I'm just going to read it to you because there is a question when you read this on the yes side. As, uh, why did it end up about um, uh, neutrality? Well, maybe on the yes side, there was a failure to really get any sense of what this was all about. And again, it starts perhaps a dangerous thread on the yes side, um, of which Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, um, are, are, are very much guilty of as well. Um, just want to take the, the Labour example because it's a good one, but... Uh, of the kind of things that were being said by the major yes parties that maybe were planting seeds for problems later because they're now getting into a habit of talking about things. We've talked about previous shows, things that the no side said that never happened. We're getting into a period where we're saying things on the yes side that equally people feel aren't really happening. So for instance, and just to read from this, the Amsterdam Treaty, Building Our Future at the Heart of Europe, from um, Labour Party, led by Rory Quinn, as pictures on it, and says, quote, Ireland has benefited enormously from our membership of the European family. The Amsterdam Treaty is the next stage in the process of building closer cooperation with our European partners. The European Union has been a tremendous force for good throughout the entire continent. The treaty will give European Union new powers to tackle problems and issues which affect people such as unemployment, discrimination, crime, the environment and public health. By voting yes on Friday, May 22nd, you will lay the foundations for the Europe we want to build in the 21st century. The Labour Party wants Europe to become more democratic and relevant to the needs of the people. With your support, we can make this happen. Yours faithfully, Rory Quinn TD. End quote there. Before I go on to the, the, the reverse side of the document, just to say, it's a lovely kind of sentiment and it's exactly the kind of thing that you get used to seeing at this point from the S side. However, it doesn't actually tell you a whole lot about what the treaty's actually doing. It's aspirational stuff. Europe's good. We're good. We're at the heart of Europe. This will allow us to deal with all these big problems that are out there that, of course, everyone wants dealt with. Ergo, vote for it. But without actually saying anything about what, what's in the treaty, what's it actually... And this becomes a challenge for them because the treaties are complex. Now, on the reverse side, it does try to go into detail and gives a number of bullet points. So hopefully we'll get some direction here. Quote, why you should vote in favour of the Amsterdam Treaty. Workers and citizens' rights will be placed at the heart of the union. Tackling unemployment will become a top EU priority. The treaty will ensure enhanced EU action in the ongoing war on drugs. Cooperation between all EU members in the battle against crime will improve. The EU will have greater powers to tackle discrimination and promote equality. Consumer protection will be an EU priority. There will be an increased role for the EU on the world stage. The treaty will enhance environmental protection throughout the EU. Yes, for a just and equal Europe for all. End quote. 
Now, <clears throat> let's just look at that because again here, this is one that, as I said, these problems that I think begins to happen for the yes side in Irish referendums on Europe. It's all there, but it's a little bit vague. And it's vague because treaties are tough. They don't kind of have, it's definitely doing this. It's not a particular law it's introducing. It's introducing an ability to look at certain laws. That's hard to explain, and that's where they're really struggling. Whereas what you start seeing on the no side is, it's going to introduce X. You are losing your neutrality. This introduces an army. Treaties don't actually in their own right do that. It's what follows from the treaty that does it. But when one side's able to point to very definite things happening and the other side are kind of aspirational things, it becomes difficult. If we look at some of those things, workers' and citizens' rights would be placed at the heart of the EU. Why? Were they not? Have you not been telling us since, okay, Labour were opposed to joining, we know, early uh, at the originally, but since the Single European Act onwards, you've been telling us this is good. Workers have benefited hugely. Uh, you know, incomes have gone up, workers' rights have gone up. So were we not at the heart of the EU? What, what exactly does that mean? How are you going to change that? You know, you're, you're almost suggesting something was wrong before now dealing with this. Tackling unemployment will become a top EU priority. Was it not? You know, again, talking about this, we've talked about the benefits of being in the EU. You've said these benefits. Now you're kind of saying, well, they're going to become more benefits. Either we were, you know, the EU has actually succeeded on this or it's not. And again, the question is for the yes side, over the following years, they fail to really show how any of these things come true. What happened out of Amsterdam? Did unemployment, because, you know, did it, did it boost from, from what happened out of Amsterdam? It said the treaty will ensure enhanced EU action on the war on drugs. I'm not quite sure anybody today feels that we're better off in the drugs war than we were in the late 90s. Now, I'm sure that somebody will say, hold on, there's a vast array of wonderful laws that have been introduced that were allowed by Amsterdam, but do the public know them? No. Do they know that they relate to what they voted on in Amsterdam? No. You look at that and you kind of say, war on drugs, war on drugs, what's the war on drugs? And how is the EU going to do anything about it on the ground? Cooperation between EU members and the battle against crime will improve. Okay, well, that's good. And maybe we can see how that... But, but, have you ever shown us the results of this? Have you ever come back and told us how this works? What worked? What was it from Amsterdam? What was the success of Amsterdam? Um, the EU will have greater powers to uh, tackle discrimination, promote equality. Again, you've been telling us for years that this was the best institution for stopping this. What? What still needs to be done? How are you going to do it? And what is it that it does? Give us the examples. It's all just vague aspiration. Well, yeah, fine, but sure. Wouldn't anybody want that? Isn't that what they would do irrespective? I hardly think that the EU is trying not to promote uh, the uh, equality. Um, consumer protection at the heart of EU policy. Isn't that why it was set up fair competition open competition consumers you know wasn't this real core part of what it was about hasn't that what the previous referendum did why does this need even more um an increased role for the eu on the world stage why why does it matter um enhance environmental protection throughout the eu and again do we really think can anybody today in, in 2021 point to the Amsterdam Treaty and say, here's how that saved the environment? I don't think we'd be in that zone. And of course, there are other things that happened. And I know I'm being unfair there. I'm being unfair because I'm saying 
like almost none of it happened or not it's not the case it's that treaties are hard to explain because they're only small frameworks that allow laws and changes to take place and they do but one of the things we fail to do after them is ever before we get to the next referendum explain what this actually here's what we told you was happening and here's it in action here's what your yes vote actually achieved in that referendum here's what it did and here's how you're seeing it now happen because we don't see that you begin to go meh they say that every referendum. They say that every time. And of course, that becomes a problem. And the reason I point that out is because there's going to be problems in the future for uh, political parties as they embark on this uh, referendum. Because the challenges are continually going to be that, you know, what what is it actually doing or changing? You don't see it on the ground. Maybe we don't need to be. One other uh, piece of election literature I'm going to mention, of course, is one that... <clears throat> sticks in many people's minds from young Fine Gael at the time who begin to take a different approach, memorable approach um, to these kind of campaigns. It will be a hallmark of young Fine Gael over the coming years and coming referendums on Europe. They decide to move away from boring old political literature and move into simple messages that will just stick in people's minds that maybe seem to have nothing to do with the actual referendum. But hey, we're young people and we're just out there to uh, convince people to do something and we're not getting into it. It's a different way of engaging. Uh, one of the things I start out with uh, 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 on this journey that they will have through referendums, uh, and they're quite clever with it, but uh, causes a little bit of consternation among some elements. Because remember, still, you're talking about Ireland's only just got over the, uh, the divorce referendum. Um, you know, abortion still is a... a, a thorny issue in Ireland and you know so young people having a voice here and maybe things that they're but it does signify something to me here Fine Gael, young Fine Gael take a very liberal let's say attitude to it they produce this poster which causes some consternation in Ireland which uh, says young Fine Gael, um passion for Europe and it has a girl and a guy in a very loving embrace with no clothes on whatsoever, and says across the top, yes, yes, yes. And that's it. Um, it does exactly what it says in the tin. It is very much talked about. <laughs> um, it is very much discussed. And it takes, I suppose, for the yes side, an attempt by younger people on that side to say, well, we can do exactly what's been happening on the no side, which is to take one simple thing and just go vote no for this. And you know, be a little bit fun, be a little bit out there and be make it this a little bit cooler and more our generation. Uh, and it certainly gets people talking, although some people say this is disgraceful. You know, um, some people say this is, you know, young people, you know, not getting into the important issues and they're reducing it down to, you know, simple slogan. That's not our style. We should be talking about issues. And of course, horror of horrors, are they promoting people having sex? still a difficult thing in the late 90s the idea that people are out having sex so <clears throat> look uh, it, it was an important uh, uh, poster though because it does change and, and, and I have to give this to, to young friend of great time it changes a lot of because over the following decade you're going to see the move towards uh, new media internet social media all of those things that comes that kind of clever positioning that kind of instant marketing that kind of thing that you see there from all sides in campaigns, 
begins to take hold and people can complain about it or give out about it but if it grabs attention it does something and you've seen that all the way through in american elections lately and all the things that we've talked about and and internationally this is a trend happening here in ireland you see that trend begin to happen and and it's one that again becomes talked about because it does start to shift the 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 dial of what political discourse should be and particularly for young people who maybe are not feeling but more importantly for me, it does point. I mean, Fine Gael is a traditional conservative party. They are led at this point by John Bruton, who is a very conservative guy, even though he has led the divorce referendum. <coughs> but very conservative in his views on abortion and seen as that. So that's partially why people trusted him on the, the divorce question. But they're traditionally uh, a, quite a conservative party at this point. What you see here is that Something in Fine Gael is suggesting that they've a younger crew coming up who are not so conservative. They've a younger crew coming up who are openly goading maybe the people in the likes of Youth Defence and in those ultra-Catholic-based organisations and saying, here, look at us, we're going wild over here uh, with posters of naked people while you uh, are you know, talking about how these things are wrong. That was a big step for Fine Gael. It did perhaps suggest that over the coming decades, because over the following 20 years, there'll be an interesting thing where Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil as two broadly conservative parties, Fine Gael probably even maybe at one point more so, Fine Gael morphs into the party that leads many of the referendums in conjunction with Labour Party for much more liberal rules and laws on some of these big social issues. And maybe you are just seeing at that point a young Fine Gael coming up who are willing to take hold of this and say, yeah, we don't have issues and hang-ups about sex and about being, you know, out there and saying, you know, making a joke about it and having to hide it away. There was a important point there. And I do think it was it was a, a, a signal, a signal that Fianna Fáil maybe didn't pick up on quite so quickly, but also a signal within Ireland that perhaps the generational shift was also beginning to happen here. Now, I know there's probably people saying, Johnny, you're making too much of a poster here, but it was such a difference for the people who were on that yes side to actually go out and do something like that. Um, I'm running the risk of being told they were belittling politics and all those kind of things. I do think you were looking at, because certainly at this period for me, is that demarcation line in the years directly after the divorce uh, referendum. When Ireland starts this liberal journey. The church becomes something that a new generation is rejecting, at least rejecting, if they're not rejecting its teachings outright, they're certainly rejecting the idea that they have to listen to bishops on moral issues where they're probably far more educated than said bishops. Um, you start to see a rejection of uh, you know, the church's failures to deal with its own problems sees the church completely disappear in terms of having any influence over the Irish political sphere. Um, because if they can't handle the things that were going on in their own institution, they're not going to be asked to handle anything going on in the state. Um, you start to see uh, that shift in Ireland at this point towards something much more liberal, much more. And you're going to see that in referendums as it comes out. A more wins now not completely, it takes a long time, it takes about another ten, fifteen years maybe in, in there at least, but it is at this point you're starting to see a new generation take over who have not got the same hang ups, and it's a vast change for Ireland itself.
In terms of the Amsterdam referendum uh, and, and its outcome, they went to the electorate very much supported by the people and again, typically one of those referendums that was going to be uh, expected to come in, expected to be well supported and it was. Um, on a day when it was in there with the, the Good Friday Agreement, which of course meant it was a very popular government at the time, very popular point in time, uh, turnout was 56.2% uh, for the referendum and the yes vote was almost 62% and the no vote was just over 38%. So it is almost, you know, two to one uh, there in, in terms of the, the support for it. That's standard, that's good. What it does point to was was in terms of the, the referendums that have been held in, in those years, you do see a slight shift in terms of the level. You've talked about the Maastricht Treaty coming in at, you know, that 69%. You talk about the Single European Act being similar. You're dropping a little bit down to 61% here, but that's probably expected given the fact that for many of the people here, it's going to be a case of, you know, look, the neutrality thing was in people's minds. They were worried about it. It wasn't exactly an easy one to to, to appreciate. It was a, a complex treaty. I don't think anybody sees a worry or a problem in terms of the actual outcome of the referendum. Maybe they should have, though, because neutrality did become a big issue. You're going to see immigration start to rise as an issue now, and maybe that replaces divorce on the, the, the trinity, if you like, and it becomes about abortion, neutrality, and immigration become the new um, trinity that, that, that are opposed to treaties. But the result is pretty conclusive. Now, if you were looking for warning signs, if you were looking for any kind of warning sign, you would look at that and say, we had a very great win behind the back particularly with the good friday agreement and all of that day you know maybe maybe some of the yes arguments are getting a little bit tired in terms of just saying europe does all these wonderful vague things maybe if we with the benefit of hindsight and i'm not suggesting anybody would have seen this at the time but i think with the benefit of hindsight if you could go back in time and advise a government you'd be saying we really need to point out to people just what that vote on amsterdam has allowed them to do when these things happen we need to point to Amsterdam and say, that was it, you voted yes, you allowed this to happen and that's a good thing. Without that, they're going to just get more vagueness by the time we have another treaty. And that is what happens. It's the same old things over and over again. And while the Young Fenegrail poster was great in terms of advancing it's, it's, uh, it for a new generation, it's not something that gets to the substantive issue, fair enough. And that's a problem because you have another group saying, yeah, we're not just voting just because I'm told to vote yes, just because we've always voted yes. And these issues begin to weigh on people's minds. And when you've gone from that very high uh, thing of almost 80% wanting to join the EEC to, to you know, the, the, the 70, almost 70% in Maastricht, you're now down to 60%, just 61%. You know, there's a drift. There is a little drift there. There's another 10% gone. Kind of thinking, you know, on a worse day, you could be in trouble. Now, you're still fairly safe. And I think Ireland gets into a very lazy approach to referendums because we think you're still always going to get over the line. But we needed to address some of that drop-off and that doesn't happen in this period. As a result... 
you get uh, a referendum that maybe there's a warning sign in there. Maybe there was something that said we're struggling with the information. We're struggling with some of these new big concepts and how Europe is being forced to change on a world stage because global events are, of course, impacting Europe. And that means it's impacting Europe's relationship with Ireland as well. Uh, and all of those things maybe combine a little bit. However, on the day, it's a great success. Uh, it's another referendum through, another referendum passed, another step on the road in Europe and Ireland yet again says we are 100% a committed European Union member. And so that is it for those three uh, referendums in there. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any opinions on them or you think I've missed out anything or if I have anything inaccurate in there and it does happen from time to time due to the, the sheer pressures and, and volumes of information. But if I have, you get me on Twitter at Johnny Fallon at J-O-N-N-Y-F-A-L-L-O-N. But um, I would love to hear any discussion, any topics if you have enjoyed this please do share the pod and let other people know and we can keep it going and that's how we expand our listener numbers but i want to thank you all for listening i want to thank car communications who of course make this podcast possible and for all your training pr and media needs uh car communications is of course my employer and the place to go but also the people who have helped facilitate and inform uh through the library and through their own thoughts everything that goes into the podcast podcast um we are going to have just to let you know in some other news we are going to be having uh continuing with our referendum series the next one up will be of course on the good friday agreement and all of that meant for ireland which was a particularly historic occasion we will also be establishing from the end of this month, being January 2021. At the moment, we are going to be establishing at the end of the month a monthly uh, review of the news on the Johnny Fallon podcast, which will happen uh, at the end of each month. So do listen out for that. And that will be on current news, current affairs and what's happening in the country and the world at large uh, in the headlines. Once again, thank you all for listening. Uh, do get in touch and stay in touch and I look forward to chatting to you all again from our next podcast.